This is a Federal News Network podcast. They're operating under a continuing resolution, but agency information technology staffs are working hard on modernizing. Recently, the Office of the Federal Chief Information Officer came out with what is called a government-wide operating plan. CIO Claire Martirana said that the plan should not be confused with a strategy. At the recent ACT-IACT Executive Leadership Conference in Hershey, Pennsylvania, Federal Drive host Tom Temin caught up with Martirana and asked what the difference is. The way I think about it is a strategic vision document, you know, paints the picture of what we want to be in existence sometime in the future. The IT operating plan was specifically answering questions from Congress about how do the Citizen Service Fund, uh, you know, the GSA appropriations, OMB's ITOR fund that has two parts of it. One is OFCIO, the Office of the Federal Chief Information Officer, that also houses the federal CISO, as well as the United States Digital Service. So the question was, how do you all work together and coordinate across government? We felt the best way to answer that question was more on a tactical level. Here's what we do. Here's how we operate. And here's what we get accomplished by operating in this fashion and governing ourselves in this process. In some ways, it almost sounds like the military term concept of operations. They use that word. Yeah, very similar. We didn't want to come out and say, you know, in five years, there will be, you know, magical digital services that will do all the things for all the people. We wanted to be more practical and say, we're on a journey. And this is these are the component pieces of one part of the journey. And then we have our agency partners that also are on journeys. And how might this operating plan in the center of government actually aid agencies going on similar journeys or trying to get to the starting line to go on their modernization journey? And a lot of modernization includes new digital services, new applications. And you talked a lot about sprints and the need to do rapid development and so forth. How does that work and how do you balance that with the need for durability, accountability, long-term maintenance, even in the sprint context so that applications have some consistency over maybe decades? Absolutely. The, The interesting thing about a sprint is the keys to success are making sure that you have subject matter experts and federal staff on a sprint team, right? There are wonderful contracting partners across government that could come in, airdrop a team in, do an enormous amount of things, build a prototype, hand it to you, and then leave. Um, What we really find to be effective is actually building a cross-functional team. Our vendor partners, our contracting partners, our federal subject matter experts, and people that have digital competencies so that those people, either from the United States Digital Service or possibly even from a vendor, coming in, designing a sprint, but bringing our federal staff along on that journey, bringing those subject matter experts along. Because if you build a prototype of something, the concept of that is in order to allow us to pressure test a um, technical concept, a, a technical solution, without investing I need $10 million over the next three years, and I'm going to build a thing, and then it is going to be immovable. By doing user research, rapidly prototyping something to see if you can fulfill the needs of those users, you're iterating and you are rapidly developing so that you are not pouring cement 
until you know actually what you need to build and then the path for future sustainment. Because one of the most challenging things that you can do is build something that is terrific, that then needs to scale, and you don't have the funding, you don't have the staff, and you don't really have the organizational commitment to make sure that it can be sustained over a period of time. That requires partnership with your CFO, requires partnership with your acquisition team to make sure that you're designing any of these solutions so that they're the most flexible, but also the most sustainable long-term. And in many ways, that requires the program owner itself, him or herself, to be not only involved, but to take responsibility because it's their program. They should be the sprint champion, right? If you're building something on behalf of a business unit, they need to be in the room. You are, the way that I think of it is my background is product management. So the way that product management works is you understand the business requirements, you understand the customer needs, you understand the technology. You might not code the solution yourself, but you understand all of those. You bring everyone together onto the same team, and the product manager is kind of the Venn in those overlapping circles that actually make sure you're fulfilling the business need, you're doing it in a sustainable and scalable manner, that you have done the design with your users, that you're not presuming what your customer wants, that you're actually asking your customer what they want and need and designing a service for them, and that the technologists are the ones making the informed recommendation about the technology solution. It's not me as a CIO or me as the business owner who's going to say, we're going to build this system with X widget, and X widget is our solution for everything. It is actually letting the technologists make those decisions because they're in the room with you, with the business partner, and with the customer. And program rules change because of legislation, because of some national need, ultimately, is what drives all of this. And so if a program then needs different data calls, different sources, different integrations from another agency, and we've seen examples of this time and time again over the decades, cash for clunkers, you know, that was another one that worked, you know, for the time that it lived. How do you maintain the ATO and the cybersecurity? I mean, that's got to be kind of table stakes for these things. But yet, every time you add a new, say, data call, it changes. Absolutely. But with APIs, application programming interfaces, right, you can do that in a much more fluid manner so that you are actually testing in your, not necessarily testing in your production environment, but you are able to rapidly test in your dev environment to make sure that you can ingest that data, that the data is clean, that that data is giving you an informed um, set of information that's actually improving the experience for the customer. So there's lots of different modern technology, um, uh, you know, best practices that are being utilized all across the government that actually help these programs. You don't have to go and refactor an enormous amount of your technology to plug in new APIs. Right. So then that gets to the issue of shared services and shared logic services, because so much of the logic is the same across all of these domains, all of these agencies. And it's only one layer that distinguishes one agency from the other. I'm simplifying. Right. But with containerization and the ability to lock in functions via APIs or inter-container communications, it seems like a lot of sprinting can be avoided because 
you know, you've got the library already there. Yeah, and I, I think it it brings up something that we talked about a little bit on the main stage with uh, life experiences, for example, is thinking about how the customer transits one task that might be housed at one agency, and then they have to log out of that system, remember the username and password, go to a completely different system, log into it, create an identity, validate their identity, log into a new system, remember that username and password, complete that task, go to the third system, do the exact same thing. We're trying to think through shared services. How do we help that customer complete an end-to-end journey, right? That's why we always talk about journey maps, an end-to-end journey and focus on those specific moments that matter in each of those journeys and make sure that we try to make that as seamless as possible for the user so that they don't have to keep username, password over here. I I went to a veteran's home uh, while I was uh, serving at the VA and he had, uh, I took a picture with his permission of his computer that was an old style monitor, really (laughs) big and thick. And all around it were post-it notes with his different VA benefits, his username and password for each one of those systems. And it was so stunning to see that he needed to remind himself for him to just fill a prescription, check on a benefit, um, a claim that was in process, and do a couple other things. He had to use all of those different usernames and passwords just to accomplish those goals. And it really drove home for me the burden that we're putting on our customers. Um, And we have certain customers that uh, deal with government services that might be in a fragile mindset, Mm -hmm. right? They could have, uh, you know, uh, gone through a disaster and and that they have lost their home or had some significant part of their life disrupted and they don't have their computer with all their post-it notes like how are we being of service to them and making it easier for them to navigate all of these different uh, technical systems in the most simple and seamless way but with security as our prime focus sure and you mentioned the life experiences in passing we should maybe explain the five life experience project going on yep yeah they are examples of them are surviving a disaster um facing economic challenge um uh nearing retirement just think about that alone when you're nearing retirement you have to fulfill certain activities with social security but you also need to do similar things at Medicare, yep, right, that are age-sensitive. If you don't do them at the right time in Medicare, for example, there is, um, in some circumstances, there's a penalty that not only, if you, if you apply late, it not only impacts you this year. The rest of your life. It impacts you the rest of your life. And you think about that and think, golly, did we make it so hard for somebody who work for 40 years, 50 years. They've paid into the system. They've earned these benefits. These are, you know, wonderful benefits of the United States government. And did we make it so hard that they have to pay a penalty every year because we didn't make it seamless for them to be able to go, hey, I'm going to check this box over here, and that's going to auto-enroll me over here so I don't get a penalty. 
those are the kind of things through life experiences that we're trying to figure out. Another great one. So um, will there be like a deliverable at the end of a certain period where there will be five life experiences or six life experiences in a portal that kind of encompasses all those? We're doing discovery on them right now by bringing all the agencies together so that they start working together. Another wonderful one that is being worked on is offboarding from active duty to becoming a veteran. You offboard from active duty, then there's big, dark space, <laughs> and then at some point you show up at the VA and have to re-present yourself as a veteran. And if you think about it, the day you offboard, don't you become a veteran? Sure. If you're thinking of it again from a customer perspective. So the DOD and the VA are doing tremendous work together, thinking about they have a great program called TAP, the Transition Assistance Program. Correct. Yep. And that works great, and it's hands-on training, and they're trying to think of ways to optimize it. So that's the way these two incredibly large agencies are not thinking about themselves. They're thinking about their customer. How can they be of service? And then how can the systems align with what the, the service need is? That's Federal CIO Claire Martirana speaking with Federal Drive host Tom Temin. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the show on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive-in-residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One 
don't think I still am reflecting on it. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day jobs, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? 
Yeah, it's it's interesting today too. Working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say like a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're 
passionate about the environment or national security or healthcare, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Kristen here, reminding you not to do things. What I mean is, with same-day delivery for everything from gifts to groceries, you only have to do the things you want to do. To not do the other things, visit Shipt.com. That's S-H-I-P-T dot com.